Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Will you pray with me? Divine love, I ask that you would make goodness ever more manifest in our lives and in this world. Amen. And please be seated. This morning, we're continuing in our sermon series titled Ancient Anchors, which is exploring two Christian sacraments that tether our lives together as Christians, uh, Eucharist and Baptism. As Ben pointed out last week, the beautiful thing about sacraments is that they invite us into embodiment. That's to say, rather than being anchored by Christian ideas appear in our heads through the affirmation of dogma or doctrine, sacraments invite us to enact divine realities here and now in our everyday lives. And truly, that's what a sacrament is. A sacrament is defined as being a sign a symbol of God's grace. And grace refers to unmerited favor, the gift of unmerited favor. And so here's a definition for sacrament that I find helpful. A sacrament is a symbol that reflects an unearned gift of divine favor. I'd like to say that again. A sacrament is a symbol that reflects an unearned gift of divine favor. Last week, Ben shared about the sacrament of Eucharist, and this morning we're going to explore the sacrament of baptism. The word baptism comes from the Greek baptizo, which simply means to plunge, to plunge down. And so when a person or a thing is plunged down into water, that person or thing is being quite literally baptized. Now, Christianity has taken this idea of baptizo and has applied to it meaning. One meaning for a Christian person being baptized is new life. From Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And from Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, when you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. According to these passages, through baptism, we bear witness to a dead person buried and to a new person rising. And this act, this embodied enactment of death and resurrection Well, it reflects a divine reality, which is a person's becoming. A person's becoming through death and resurrection again and again and again. For certainly, you are not who you were yesterday, right? You're not who you were last week. You're not who you were last month or last year or last decade, for you are ever becoming, 
And so just as a person dips down into a river and and jumps up, quaking, heart pulsing, alive, baptism is a moment during which we Christians celebrate the goodness that is dying and rising. Dying and rising over and over again. With this way of becoming in mind, there's no need to feel guilt or shame about who you used to be three years ago, four years ago, 20 years ago. If you could have been anything other in those other forms of you, you would have been. And as soon as another other became clear to you, your old self had already died as a new you was being made manifest. That is how it happens. We have these moments and we think, how did I not see it that way? How did I not think about this earlier? How did I not inhabit this way of being so long ago? And yet there is no other way to become. We become through death and resurrection, always death and resurrection. But as much as we come to recall and to celebrate our own becoming, the sense of shame and guilt for not seeing for not being what we've become more quickly can be difficult to kick, can't it? It's this very human experience of guilt, of feeling dirty, that gives rise to a second meaning of baptism, which is a clean, a good conscience. From 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, in baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to Peter, when a Christian person is baptized, it's about something more than just dying and rising. It's also like taking a bath that makes our bodies clean. And yet Peter is clear the baptismal bath isn't for our bodies, it's in a very substantial way for our souls. For just as water washes clean the physical body, baptism is a moment during which we Christians imagine a divine reality, which is the cleansing of conscience. And I'm not sure this gets talked about enough in Christian circles, the cleansing of conscience. It's an incredible idea. A conscience is the inner feeling or voice that guides our sense of rightness or wrongness. Of course, much of our sense of rightness or wrongness has been bestowed upon us by figures of authority throughout our lives, and some of this bestowment has been violent, such as conservative Christianity telling queer people that their attraction is wrong. And so I'm I'm not talking about that. Rather, I'm talking about our knowing, our deep knowing that becomes more and more clear as we grow and heal and integrate and become. It's this knowing that whispers and sometimes screams, right? You're being something. You're doing something that's out of line with who it is that you know yourself to truly be. And until we listen, that voice keeps rubbing our heart like a new shoe on a heel that blisters and festers. And so sometimes, even after changing or amending or ending or beginning, which is to say, even after dying and rising, it can be incredibly difficult for our raw hearts to heal from shame and guilt, for not seeing things more quickly, or for not changing more rapidly. And so Peter explains that baptism, another person's or our own, is an actual moment in time and space to bear witness to a divine reality, 
which is shame and guilt being washed away, like dirt being washed off our very bodies. I think this could be a helpful practice that could rouse flourishing in our lives. Because shame and guilt racks us all, doesn't it? I mean, I think if I asked who struggles with shame and guilt, there'd be a lot of hands raised in the air. And so what if, what if we created a regular practice during which we pause to reflect on our own baptism or on the baptism of another as a way to mindfully imagine again and again our sense of a dirty soul being plunged, plunged down into water and rising and dripping and sparkling with all freedom and grace and goodness. This could be a powerful counterpoint to those moments during which we're burdened by shame and guilt for not seeing or changing or becoming quickly enough. And finally, there's a third meaning for Christian baptism, which is belonging in the family of God. Uh, We witnessed this belonging in this morning's gospel reading from Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is being baptized and a voice from heaven declares, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Similarly, in our own baptisms or in the baptisms of others, we are invited to hear these same words of divinity spoken over our lives. This is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. For certainly these words don't just belong to Jesus from Ephesians chapter 4. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Thus, baptism is a sign, it's a symbol, it's a reminder, it's an enactment. I am the beloved. In fact, the divine speaks it upon our lives. You are my beloved. And this is so important. I mean, how many names do we have for ourselves? Smart, dumb, hardworking, lazy, rich, poor, beautiful, ugly, successful, failure, good, bad. We could go on forever. And yet in baptism, our divine name is clearly declared beloved. And this word beloved derives from the Greek word agape, which is considered to be the highest form of love in Greek language. Agape is unearned love. Agape is love that persists regardless I'd like to say that again. Agape is a love that persists regardless. Regardless of what? Well, regardless of anything. And through baptism, we enact this divine reality that exists regardless of anything, which is I am the beloved, a child of God, a member of the divine family. The sacrament of baptism It's a Christian anchor that tethers us to unearned gifts of divine favor. The gift of becoming, it's all death and resurrection, death and resurrection. The gift of freedom, release from shame and guilt for not becoming sooner. And the gift of belonging, I am the beloved. Now, there's something that's really important for us to notice as Christians. Baptism is a Christian sacrament. Which is to say, baptism is a uniquely Christian way of naming, of embodying, of recalling unearned gifts of divine favor. And so, these unearned gifts of divine favor are not uniquely Christian. Otherwise, they wouldn't be unearned gifts of divine favor. 
Am I making sense? Like if we Christians earned these gifts by being Christian or by being baptized, then they wouldn't be unearned gifts. They would be gifts that we earn by being Christian or by being baptized, which is the opposite of a sacrament, an unearned gift. With this in mind, baptism is a uniquely Christian way of naming the unearned gift of a divine reality, which is becoming, it's all death and resurrection, freedom, release from shame and guilt for not becoming sooner, and belonging. I am the beloved. And yet the unearned gift of becoming through dying and rising or the unearned gift of freedom being released from shame and guilt, or the unearned gift of belonging, I am the beloved, well, these unearned gifts belong to and are bestowed upon every person, every human. And so let us be careful to not limit the unearned gifts of becoming and of freedom and of belonging to the sacrament of baptism, for truly there are innumerable ways for a person to become innumerable ways for a person to be freed, and innumerable ways to realize divine longing. And for me, this is one of the beautiful aspects of Christian sacraments, which is naming these unearned gifts. Because you see, once a gift is named, in fact, I think once anything is named, it becomes more possible for us to see the gift, to see the thing that's named all around us. For example, becoming. I have a relative who is not a Christian, not at all. And yet for the last 30 years, I have been witness to her being born again and again and again through hardship and sorrow and trial and tribulation, through dying and rising. I have marveled at her openness and growth and ongoing transformation, which means that for me, her life is the baptism is the sacrament of baptism. Her becoming is an unearned gift in my Christian life that invites me to continue dying and rising and ever becoming. And how about freedom from shame and guilt? I remember reading Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter early in college in my conservative Christian years. I remember Hester Prynne's scarlet letter A blazoned upon her chest because she was unwed and pregnant. I remember her Puritan culture bestowing upon her a sense, a deep sense of shame and guilt, which for a time caused her to shrivel. And yet over time, she came to accept her life, the path that belonged uniquely to her, And as the years passed, Hester's shame and guilt slowly fell away like leaves in autumn. Eventually, she came to trust that it all belongs, and her newfound freedom became a home within which many people came to visit, eventually finding their own freedom from their own experiences of shame and guilt. And in Bible college, in a conservative Christian culture, the story of Hester Prynne was the sacrament of baptism in my life. Casting an elevated vision for how even my worst moments and blazoned A's upon my chest may be able to create space for others to find their own freedom from the past. And every person, the beloved, 
I remember the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh explaining that it's all energy and matter. That's what it all is. This is all energy and matter. Energy and matter. Of course, the matter takes on different shapes, but it's all made up of energy and matter. And so isn't it absurd for we humans to get into who this energy and matter belongs to and who that energy and matter belongs to and which energy and matter belongs to God and which energy and matter does not belong to God? It sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? For this reason, Han is a sacrament of baptism in my Christian life, reminding me that we're all waves of our own contours, but inextricably connected to the water of the infinite in which we all swim. And so Gerard Manley Hopkins sings a song that I'm learning to sing more loudly day by day. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how. With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Do you see what I'm getting at here? The sacrament of baptism is the Christian embodiment. It's the Christian enactment of unearned divine realities, becoming. It's all death and resurrection, freedom, release from shame and guilt for not becoming more quickly, and belonging. I am the beloved. But these realities are embodied and enacted in many, many other ways. And it's through our Christian awareness of these unearned divine realities that our hearts are able to open wide to their expression through non-Christian people and non-Christian expressions and non-Christian encounters. For you see, the sacrament of becoming, the sacrament of freedom, the sacrament of belonging are being made manifest all around us inviting us Christians to see and to celebrate and to participate ever more deeply in divine reality at hand, becoming and freedom and belonging. Before closing, there's one more connection to baptism that I'd really like to make, which is movement from chaos to creation. That's what we see, movement from chaos to creation. In the early church, this was a primary meaning of baptism. In fact, in the early church, many baptismal pools were intentionally shaped octagonally uh, with eight sides. Uh, For this reason, uh, we find it grounded in the Genesis story that we heard this morning in the Hebrew Scriptures. It all begins in the waters of chaos. All of creation begins in the waters of chaos. But the Spirit of God is hovering over that chaos and breathing life over that chaos. And eight days later, the octagonal baptismal pool reminds us of new creation being formed out of the chaos. It's a movement. Perhaps we could rightly call it a divine pattern that begins in the waters of chaos but proceeds forward into exquisite creation. Like a child jostling around in its mother's womb to an aged and mature human who has lived If we back up and think about it like this, then every person is a sacrament of baptism. Having jostled about in the chaotic waters of a womb only to be birthed and to grow and to over time become. What an interesting way to think about humans here on earth. But I think it's more than just the arc of a human life. It's also human moments that we've all had. 
You know, like, like the dark moments, the foreboding moments, the painful moments, the chaotic moments. For it's through the lens of baptism that the worst moments, the chaotic moments, are not seen any longer as the end, but are transfigured into a hopeful beginning of a story called new creation. I love uh, Wendell Berry and his book, Jaber Crow. Uh, as it starts to get cold and dark, I've returned to it and have reread through it. And there's this extraordinary moment in the story during which Jaber is drunk and he's at a dance and he's surrounded by people who suddenly appear to him as being as lost as he is. <laughs> and he has this moment. You know, when I say a moment, you know what I'm talking about because we've all had moments. He had this moment and he stumbles into a bathroom and as the world spins around him, he realizes that his life has become utter chaos. Looking up, he notices a very small window, (laughs) too small for his frame, which invites him literally and metaphorically out of that chaos. And so squeezing through, cut and scraped, he's birthed into a brand new world. Falling to the earth with a thud, he takes off in the dark of the night, walking many miles to get home. Exhausted, cold, hungry, he starts to feel surprising hope. And as the sun begins to rise, he comes to realize that his chaos is just the genesis of a new story. A story of his own becoming. The story of a newfound freedom. The story of his belonging to the townspeople of Port William, to which he deeply belongs. Oh, chaos. That relationship, that addiction, that waste of time, that loss, that regret, that shame, that guilt, that wandering, that wondering. Is this the end of my life? Will this darkness last forever? Is there any way out? Could there be a way forward? Until suddenly we recall that this is how all good stories begin. Isn't that true? Chaotic lives upon which the Spirit of God blows, the worst of moments becoming a bathroom window open wide and inviting to each of us crawl out. For according to the sacrament of baptism, your chaos resides within the boundaries of an octagonal, eight-sided pool promising exquisite creation at hand. And you're becoming, you're being set free from shame and guilt. You're hearing, accepting, and knowing in your bones that you are the beloved. Well, that's the fulfillment of chaos's promise. And so the divine invites baptizo. Be plunged. Open wide your arms, take a deep breath, and jump into this, your one and only precious life. And as you take a hot bath or splash water on your face or dip your toes in that glorious Pacific Ocean or sit by a creek or watch a person be baptized or recall your very own baptism, remember, always remember that becoming, that freedom from shame and guilt for not becoming sooner, and belonging in the divine itself are the unearned gifts being made manifest all around us. May we become. And let us pray. Divine love, I ask that you would open our eyes and lives to becoming. 
I pray and ask you would open our eyes and lives to the freedom that is ours from all of that shame and guilt that we feel for not becoming much sooner. And I pray and ask that you would open our eyes and hearts to recognize our belonging in your infinite love. And in seeing, help us Christian people to celebrate these unearned divine gifts all around us. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.